The Old Testament lesson is taken from Genesis chapter 45. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sin is read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts as Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink for tomorrow, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. 
there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the sixth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use it will be measured back to you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Well, grace to you in peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The text for this morning's message is the Old Testament lesson that we heard from the book of Genesis. And also I'll be talking about Jesus' words from the gospel lesson as well. But I wanted to highlight verse 15 of the Old Testament lesson. And Joseph kissed all of his brothers, and he wept upon them. This is our text. How is it that people can forgive other people who have injured them in the most horrific way? For example, the devastated parents of Ivan Mejia, who was killed by a fellow high school student. His parents said through a spokesperson that they hold no grudge, that they're actually offering forgiveness to the young man who murdered their son. Or take Matt Swatzel. Matt Swatzel was driving home after a 24-hour shift as a fireworker or a firefighter when he fell asleep at the wheel. And his car crashed into another vehicle driven by June Fitzgerald, a pregnant mother traveling with her then 19-month-old daughter named Faith. Faith survived. But June and her unborn child were killed. June's husband, Pastor Eric Fitzgerald, eventually reached out to Matt. And they met at least once every two weeks. They attended church together. 
and they often ate meals together at the local Waffle House. And the two made a video entitled, A Friendship Forged in Forgiveness, to tell their story. Both families are doing the unthinkable, aren't they? They're forgiving the unforgivable. In her article, Forgiving, Not Forgetting, Kim Pittaway compares the reactions of people who experience the murder or tragic deaths of loved ones. Pittaway describes the anger and desire for revenge that some victims have while other victims offer forgiveness to those who have perpetrated a crime against their loved ones and against them. Pittaway writes, anger still seems more natural. Pain and rage seem understandable, but forgiveness, mysterious and unattainable. And in fact, in some parts of the world, forgiveness is seen as the coward's way out, an indication that you don't care enough or are too frightened to stand up to the offender. Pittaway's assertion makes sense, doesn't it? Anger seems natural when something so unjust happens as described in the two stories with which I open this message. Jesus' words in the gospel lesson seem so ridiculous, so unrealistic. I mean, who can live their lives by the words that Jesus spoke when he said, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you and bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you And to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Forgiveness may be mysterious, as Pitaway observes. But is forgiveness unattainable? Forgiveness isn't unattainable for the Mejia family, nor for Pastor Fitzgerald. And forgiveness is not unattainable for Joseph, the son of Jacob. You know, one might expect Joseph to be filled with rage and revenge. His jealous brothers, they schemed to kill him, but eventually they sell him into slavery, telling their father that Joseph was devoured by a ferocious animal. And then while serving as a servant in Potiphar's home, Joseph is accused falsely of sexual harassment and he's put in jail. He lingers in jail for about 11 years for a crime that he did not commit. Imagine his bewilderment as he watches some of his most productive years of his life pass him by. Imagine the anger and the bitterness that sees and simmers within him toward his brothers. And yet, when he had the opportunity and the power to exact revenge upon his brothers, Joseph chooses forgiveness. He kisses his brothers, and he weeps upon them. How is it? How is it possible for Joseph to forgive his brothers? Well, the secret lies in Joseph's words that he speaks to them. Joseph says to his brothers, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. Joseph has the good fortune 
that he can look back at his struggles and hardships. He can look back at those dark days in his life and he can see how God uses the jealousy of his brothers, the lies of Potiphar's wife, and the years of languishing in a prison cell to place him into a position where he might be used for the well-being of many nations. It is Joseph's conviction that God has sent him to Egypt, that God is the one who has elevated him to this high office that he now holds, and is thus making it possible to save not only his brothers who betrayed him, but also entire nations from starvation. And despite the circuitous, even torturous route of the life that Joseph recognizes that God has chosen for him to endure, he also recognizes that God's merciful plan is being carried out in Joseph. And so to bear all of those problems and hardships are worth it because he's doing what God envisioned for him to do. And it's this perspective that Joseph has that enables him to be able to forgive his brothers. It was not God, it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. Oh, that we would have the opportunity to look back on our life and see how God navigates it or how he has navigated it, especially how God has used the tragedies and the hardships and the betrayals and the setbacks in our life to accomplish his purposes in our life and in the lives of other people. But we don't usually get that opportunity, do we? Instead, as people who believe in a just and compassionate and merciful and omnipotent God, we resign ourselves to simply trust God at His Word when God says His ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. In the book, A View from the Zoo, Gary Richman describes the birth of a giraffe. The first thing to emerge are the baby giraffe's front hooves and head. A few minutes later, the plucky newborn calf is hurled forth and falls ten feet and lands on its back. Within seconds, he rolls to an upright position with his legs tucked under his body. And from this position, he considers the world for the first time and shakes off the last vestiges of the birthing fluid from his eyes and his ears. The mother giraffe, she lowers her head long enough to take a quick look at her newborn. And then she positions herself directly over her calf. She waits for about a minute, and then she does the most unreasonable thing. She swings her long, pendulous leg outward and kicks her baby so that it is sent sprawling head over heels. And when it doesn't get up, the violent process is repeated. The struggle is momentous. As the baby calf grows tired, the mother kicks it again and again to stimulate its efforts. And finally, the calf stands for the first time on its wobbly legs. And then the mother giraffe does the most remarkable thing. She kicks it off its feet again. And why? Well, she wants her calf to remember how it got up. In the wild, baby giraffes must be able to get up as quickly as possible to stay with the herd where there is safety. 
Lions and hyenas and leopards and wild hunting dogs all enjoy young giraffes. And they'd get it too if the mother didn't teach her calf to get up quickly and to get with it. As an aside, these are my words, not his. I'm sure that when that baby giraffe is being chased later in its life by a lion or a leopard or a hyena, that he is happy to have been kicked repeatedly by his mother. That's kind of how it is in our relationship with God. God is like the mother giraffe. When we expect God to shelter us, what does he do? He knocks us down. When we finally get up on our two feet and we're wobbly, what does God do? He may knock us down again and for our own good. God doesn't exist, you see, to gratify the desires of his people. He doesn't exist and have a relationship with us so he can make our life easier. No. In fact, God allows us to endure various kinds of trials and tribulations and tragedies so that we might remember how to get up. It's his way of urging us to walk with him in the safety of his herd, so to speak, in his shadow, under his care. Commenting on the, wor- on the incident in Joseph's life, Martin Luther writes, In this manner Joseph was tried and disciplined in a wonderful way until he was humbled and instructed and finally raised up again. For he arrived at such knowledge of godliness and such wisdom that he could also counsel others and rule over them. And where did he get such great ability? It was because he was mortified. It was because he was brought down to hell. It was because he was slighted and driven to despair. Nevertheless, in the time of trial, he retained faith and hope with great strength of spirit. O Lord, give us the faith of Joseph. Help us to believe that you are behind the scenes, especially those tumultuous and deserving events in our life. Ruling and guiding and governing and controlling and leading and orchestrating. So that in everything and at all times, your will is done. And Lord, when you kick us off our feet, when you kick us when we're down, help us to see that you're doing this all for our spiritual and eternal well-being. You see, friends, if we can see God's almighty and merciful hand at work in our life as did Joseph, then we may be less worried and fearful of the evil that we experience. We may find ourselves less depressed, less disheartened, less discouraged when we experience setbacks in life. And our anger and our revenge over a wrong may dissipate in our heart, and we may actually find ourselves forgiving those who have wronged against us. May we ever be accepting of the blows that God delivers upon us, as painful as they may be, for we do truly believe that these blows that God inflicts upon us may usher us, may even be the reason why it is that we and others end up in heaven. So let's return now to the words of Jesus in the gospel lesson. 
Jesus says these remarkable words. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. And to the one who strikes you on your cheek, well, offer him the other one as well. And the one who takes away your cloak, well, give him your tunic as well. Do to others as you would have them do to you. As stellar as Joseph's example is of forgiveness, it fades, doesn't it, in comparison to Jesus' example of forgiveness? I mean, Jesus' enemies hate him. Jesus' enemies arrest him. I mean, Jesus is cursed, and Jesus is mocked, and Jesus is abused, and Jesus is struck on his cheeks. Jesus has his cloak and his tunic literally stripped off of him, naked. And yet, Jesus loves his enemies. Jesus does good to those who hate him. He blesses those who curse him, and he prays for those who mistreat him. Jesus is merciful to those who despise him. And it's because Jesus loves and forgives his enemies. And those enemies include you and, you and me as well, because we also are guilty of sinning against our God. But it's because Jesus loves and forgives his enemies and is willing to experience abuse and even torture on a cross, and even willing to endure the wrath of his Father for our sins. It's for all of those reasons that then we are moved to love and forgive those who sin against us. It's because Jesus does good to those who hate him that we do good to those who hate us. Jesus blesses those who curse him, and so we bless those who curse us. Jesus prays for those who abuse him, and so we pray for those who abuse us. He is merciful to the unmerciful, and so we are also merciful to the unmerciful. This was the case with the family of Ivan Mejia, who said, we hold no grudge and we forgive our son's murderer because, as they say, and I quote, their faith is giving them peace as they know their son is with God. And that was also true with Pastor Eric Fitzgerald, who forgives Matt Swetzel, because as he says, and again I quote from Pastor Fitzgerald, you forgive as you've been forgiven. It wasn't an option. If you've been forgiven, then you need to extend that forgiveness. To which Matt replies, I cannot honestly say that I can honestly say that without this friendship, I don't know where I'd be. God's people know that since Jesus was hated and beaten and abused, God's will was done. Our sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ. Death is defeated. And eternal life with our Lord is promised to us. And we know that Christ the Lord is the Lord of all things, and that he is ever working for the eternal good of his people. So even in the face of the greatest trials and persecutions, even when God seems to have deserted us or when he seems to be kicking us when we're down, we can say with Martin Luther, the Lord lives. I have been baptized. I have the word. And no matter how much the world rages against me, and no matter whether it seizes all of my property and my life, or if the world crashes in ruin and everything is embroiled in blood and slaughter, what is that to me? 
The flesh cannot show this steadfastness. Yet, if we firmly retain this faith, then we shall really, or we, there we shall really be aware of the fact that God, in whom we believe, in whose word we have, that this God is almighty. St. Augustine said, God is so good that he in no way permits an evil unless he knows how to draw good from it. Good out of evil, blessings out of burdens, crowns out of crosses, joys out of sorrows, life out of death. That's how it was with, that's how it is with God. Joseph believed this, and so he forgave his brothers. The Mejia family and Pastor Fitzgerald believed this about God, and they too were able to forgive those who had sinned against them and their loved ones. Do we believe that God can make good out of evil? That he make blessings out of burdens and crowns out of crosses and joys out of sorrows and life out of death? If so, if we do, then we can do the unthinkable. We can forgive the unforgivable. And we can even endure the unbearable. Friends, is there someone that you need to forgive? Possibly someone who has consciously, intentionally, deliberately, meanly, and maliciously hurt you? Our Savior's words today call us to live by a standard that is unimaginable to the world. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And you see, we can live this way, it's not unattainable. We can live this way and we can do the unthinkable. That is, we can forgive the unforgivable and we can endure the unbearable. Because as one Lutheran pastor reminds us, Jesus has more life than the whole world has death. Jesus has more hope than this world has despair. Jesus has more love than this world has hate. And Jesus has more forgiveness then this world has sin. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all our understanding, guard and keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.